Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, as we open your word, and it is, um, it is proclaimed in its native language, which is announcing, um, Lord, I pray that you would bless it and that we would hear the words, hear your words as the voice of our good shepherd who has died for our sins. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And you might also turn to uh, Psalm 22 if you can do two things at the same time. Matthew chapter 27. We are going to read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. We sing much about the cross. We talk about it as our salvation and our confidence and our hope. And those things are all true, but in order for them to be true, it first had to happen. It had to be an event. It had to be not an idea, but something that God did, and that was witnessed. Our salvation, friends, is not based on ideas or philosophy, but on the events, the historical events and actions of God himself. So, Matthew chapter 27, we'll begin at verse 32. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his, that is Christ's cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, 
they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean, in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his, new, his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Bless far God's word. The words that Christ cried out on the cross were not first spoken by him on the cross. In fact, he had said those words many times. He had sung those words many times. He had sung those words his whole life at the synagogue, which would have been his church service. His mom and dad would have taken him to church or to synagogue, and they would have sang these songs. They were first written actually by his ancestor a thousand years earlier, the great King David. We'll find these in Psalm 22. Let's turn there. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 opens with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that the Lord Jesus cried out on the cross. We just read that in Matthew 27. They, told, they tell us, and they told those who were eyewitnesses to his crucifixion, that what was happening on the cross was not merely a man being rejected and condemned by men. It was Christ's relationship with God the Father that was now the source of greatest pain for him. Because God the Father had turned away his face of blessing and now was facing Christ in judgment. And the experience that humans and angels would only ever experience in hell is what he was facing then on the cross. God truly forsaking him. The experience that angels and humans would only experience in hell, that feeling of having sin and no atonement, no covering, no forgiveness for sin, and then to be in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. As a church going through Isaiah, we remember that in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the call of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the temple, and he sees a vision, just a vision. He sees a vision of the glory and holiness of God. And he is made very aware that in the presence of such a holy God, he is sinful. He is carrying sin. He bears sin. And remember that Isaiah cries out with just a vision of the Lord's holiness. Knowing that he is in the presence of God with sin, he cries that he is undone. And God mercifully sends an angel to take a coal from the altar, to touch it to Isaiah's lips, so that Isaiah could have assurance that though he did have sin, 
and that God was holy, he didn't stand before God with his sin unatoned. God had atoned for his sin. So Isaiah's great undoing, he was comforted in that moment. Yes, your sin that you carry is great. And yes, it would be your undoing. But the Lord has atoned for your sin. But the Lord Jesus did not receive that comfort. On the cross, it was not just an an experience or a vision of God's holy presence. He was actually experiencing God's holy wrath in full. And he was bearing a lot of sin when he met God's presence that day. He was carrying a lot of sin. How much sin was he carrying that day? Well, none of his own. But he was carrying the sin of billions of people. He was carrying the sin of a multitude of people. He was carrying the sin of his body, the church. All who belong to him. Carrying the sin of so many people and then encountering the holy presence of God and to have no covering, no atonement, no forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says this, he who knew no sin became sin. He bore our sin and guilt while hanging on the cross and standing in the forsaking presence of God. And unlike Isaiah, no angel came to assure him that the guilt he carried was atoned for, that it was covered, because it was not. The psalm continues, Psalm 22, verse 1b. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry, day by, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now we aren't to think that David didn't feel these things when he first wrote them, where God inspired him to write these things. But what David felt in part, what he felt, the Lord Jesus experienced in full. This psalm had been sung for hundreds of years, and it had been sung meaningfully by Israel, together at the temple and also at the synagogue, and very likely by righteous people as they suffered in their homes quietly, using these words to cry out to God that they feel forsaken. It was a song that God gave his people to sing about the feeling of forsakenness by God, which we can often feel on this earth. And that's because the world is under the curse of sin. And the curse that it includes pain and loneliness and sickness and hunger and war and depression and poverty and theft and corruption of leaders and earthquakes and storms. That experience of the curse that we feel in this life is a taste of the curse of God towards sin. And God allows us to feel that to remind us that the forsakenness by him is a real and it is, it is real, and it is the fate of all mankind 
if we were to stand before God with our sin uncovered, with our sin unatoned. And when we do, we are invited, and God teaches us, cry out to me when you feel forsaken. We feel the curse for sin which God has placed on the earth, and we're right to feel it. And we're invited to cry out because he has not forsaken us. This is why he invites us to cry out, why have you forsaken me? Because he has not forsaken us. This is our invitation. It is our privilege as children of God and part of his covenant family. This was a privilege that Jesus enjoyed during his 33 years of human life that when he felt forsaken by God, he could cry out to God this words of this psalm and knowing he in fact wasn't forsaken by God, he was beloved. But he knew as he was singing those words of Psalm 22, as he grew older and older, he knew that one day he would not be singing about feeling forsaken by God, but he alone in Israel would be the one singing that song, not just based on the feeling, but on the reality. He would be experiencing the forsakenness of God. And yet he didn't avoid the cross. He directed his entire life toward the cross. And how did he face this? Well, we read in First Peter that he entrusted himself to God's sovereignty and plan. He didn't forsake the cross. He entrusted himself to God's sovereignty and his plan. And we see the same thing in Psalm 22. Let's read. Psalm 22, verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were rescued. In you, they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I am a worm I'm, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me and they make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him, who re let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. And you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Stop there. And so rather than avoiding the cross, this forsakenness of God, the hellish wrath of God on the cross... Rather than avoiding that suffering and curse for sin, he entrusted himself to the Father's plan. And he actually reminds himself of God's faithfulness and the, the plan of redemption. His plan to keep, to, to gather, to keep and save a people from their sin. He reminds himself of God's faithfulness to his covenant family in days of old. He reminds himself of that. He confesses how faithful God then had been to him personally. Did you notice that? From before he was born to right after he was born, when he was utterly helpless, God cared for him. What a wonderful phrase. On you was I cast from my birth. So Christ on the cross 
as this psalm prophesies. And therefore, all Israel prophesied for 1,000 years before Christ. He was mocked by men, treated as a worm, mocked and shamed. They actually used the words of Psalm 22 to mock him as he hung there. Did you notice that? He trusts in God. Let God save him. If God is pleased with him, let God save him. He was despised by men. And their chief shame, did you notice what, what is their chief shame? Was that he is a fool to trust in God. Because God does not delight in him. God would not deliver him. In Matthew 27, 42 to 43, this is what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus could have avoided the cross. Everyone there knew he could have avoided the cross. He was a miracle worker. Of this, his greatest enemies would not deny. He exercised control over death and over nature. He could have avoided the cross. And it was precisely because he trusted in God that he didn't avoid the cross. He entrusted himself to God's plan. God's plan of redemption, which involved him suffering for his people. Forsaken and cursed first, resurrection and glory after. And he exercised that trust by crying out to the one who he knew was forsaking him. Now the events of the cross were orchestrated planned, authored by God to show that Christ was actually the reason that sinful people had been singing this song, had been able to and had the right to sing this song for a thousand years. Notice how closely the words of the rest of the psalm fit with the events of Christ's crucifixion, pointing that he is ultimately the one who would suffer for his people and therefore the reason they could always sing this song. Psalm 22, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, and they open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. Many, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. We'll stop there. Christ was not only rejected by his own people. It was necessary that he was rejected by his own people, demonstrating that they too deserved 
the hell that he would receive on the cross for them. But he was handed over to the Gentiles, those who were referred to as dogs. And so we see, as this psalm predicted, Jews and Gentiles, representing all humanity together. They abused him to the point that he was barely recognizable. His bones were exposed. They also show that the life of the Son of God was worth less to, them, less to them than his possessions. You know how the world could have shown that the things that God had given, the things that he has created, is worth more than he himself? Is if he would come to the earth and then they would kill him and while he is dying, they would fight over his clothes. God's Son came to rescue us, and we showed how much we love stuff and hate God by killing him and fighting for his clothes. They pierce his hands and his feet, as they did when they crucified him. Like a lion's fang piercing a man's hand, they strip him naked, and they expose him to shame. You remember when Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created sinless, they were not in need of clothing. But as soon as they did fall into sin, they recognized themselves as naked, guilty, and exposed to shame for their sin. And they quickly sought to cover themselves because they knew they were sinful. That feeling of guilt and being exposed and shame. Dear friends, when we stand before God in judgment, the Bible tells us that we will do so with nothing to cover our guilt. We will reach for things to try to cover our guilt. Things like good things we have done or pointing out worse things that other people have done. But nothing will cover our guilt. We will feel that shame. Our sinful lives and thoughts and words and desires and actions will be exposed and there we will be exposed in front of a holy God with no plea. Unless. Unless Christ was exposed to the wrath of God and felt the shame of our sin. So the actions of the people who crucified him are merely a sign of the shame and suffering which he suffered on the cross from God in our behalf. So too did they pierce his hands and feet, nailing him to the cross. And Christ went willingly, knowing he was going to face the forsaking face of God, the damnation and sin of a multitude of people too great to number. He had read Abraham's covenant. He would be carrying the weight of the sin of a people too great to number. And he did so willingly, entrusting himself to the plan of his father, and he knew it would result in resurrection. He faced and endured the cross by faith, but that's not enough, because he also had to face it by joy. Let's continue the psalm. Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. 
All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the, uh, the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face from him. But is heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall lead and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 4 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Lord Jesus has been singing this song his whole life. And he knew that he would entrust himself to the Father's plan. And he knew that he would be forsaken instead of his people. And he also knew the end of the song, that the end result would be joy. Well, didn't the Son of God already have joy from eternity? Why would he suffer the cross for joy? Dear church, let us not forget one of the sweetest doctrines, one of the sweetest doctrines that we can praise God for, the doctrine of union with Christ. Now, what does this mean? A theology lesson on Good Friday? That means the Lord has chosen a people for his son. He has chosen a people, a sinful people, a congregation which form his bride. And he has elected a bride for his son. And marriage is given to us as just a, just a mere parable, a good parable, but a mere parable of the union that Christ has with his bride, the church. In Ephesians 5, we're told that this union, this God making two one, this one flesh union, this permanent one flesh union, means that Christ sees her joy as his and her pain as his and the cross proved that he also because of his union with her saw that his sin her sin he saw as his own and so the joy that was set before him was the day when he would enjoy the fruits of his suffering with the congregation he pictured that day he would have remembered that day and he would have loved that day because the joy of his bride he considered as if it was the joy of his own body. 
If your hand gets hurt, would you be foolish enough to say, I'm not hurt, my hand is hurt? You wouldn't say that. This is how the Lord Jesus thinks of the church because of the marriage, the union that the Father has given them to him. He pictured a church made up of all the families of the nations. Did you notice that? He pictured this bride of all peoples, all languages. He pictured a congregation stretched out so far that it would reach the ends of the earth. He saw the day when he would tell his name with his brothers and sisters those who could not keep themselves alive and who were abhorred and despised and afflicted and who were standing under the wrath of God. And did you notice also that he would have envisioned and longed for the day when his redeemed church would eat with him and be satisfied? Did you notice that? Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. May those who seek him praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. That is what Lord's Supper or communion was given for us to help endure with faith but also with joy. Our earthly sojourn, our time on this world which is under the curse of sin looking forward to the same thing that made Christ injure the cross with joy. The marriage feast of the Lamb, where Christ would enjoy the marriage feast with his bride, the church. And so we will celebrate this feast together today, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not our promise before God. It is God's promise to the church made visible. We remember his oath that was sealed with the blood of Christ. That all who believe in Christ are his body. And that it was their sin that was paid for on the cross by Christ's blood. And so by taking Lord's Supper, you are confessing that you believe that promise. And that it is your hope. You are confessing that though you deserve the wrath of God, that Christ loved you so much that he took it for you. And so we would ask, if this is not your confession, let the cup and the bread pass. We would also ask that, that children who have not yet been prepared for by, by baptism, that they would withhold confessing publicly in this way, we look forward to the day that you are baptized and the day that you will celebrate Lord's Supper with us. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and we'll pray that the Lord would prepare us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, Father in heaven, we rejoice that in our moments that we feel forsaken by you, we can have confidence that if Christ is our Savior, then we are not forsaken by you. Instead, he was forsaken, the one who was pierced, the one whose clothing was gambled over. 
the one who died and who was risen. So Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now, that we would confess our faith in the gospel truly. Lord, I pray that you would use this to strengthen our faith, and not just our faith, but our joy, our forward-looking joy, so that we can even enjoy the coming marriage feast of the Lamb, even now, before it happens, because Christ's death made it sure. I pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.